our unseen artists, and we are giving the stage to underrepresented voices. I'm Courtney. And I'm Noelle. And today we are joined by Lee Winters, who is an award-winning playwright, a tour guide, an experienced designer, and a dear friend of mine. Thanks so much, Lee, for joining us today. Do you want to tell the listeners a bit about you before we get started? Heck yeah. Hey, hey. Thank you for having me. Um, dear friend. I like the use of the word dear. It makes me feel more important. Yeah. I like dear friend <laughs> of mine. I like how he's only your dear friend. He doesn't yeah. get True. to be mine. It felt a little dear. exclusive, no. but I found okay. him. I'll, t- <laughs> I'll take the compliment. Uh, but yeah, I am a playwright by trade and sort of by degree. And uh, my background is that I was very fortunate my whole life to see a whole lot of theater. Um, I had a very theatrical loving family. Uh, and that's awesome. It's Same. also not so awesome because I kind of got desensitized to it at a young age. Um, I realized kind of quickly, you know, oh, why do all of these completely different shows have the same sort of art? Why do they feel like the same type of thing? Why do I keep knowing how they're going to end? More higher concept things that started to bother me are things like, why am I in a room with a thousand people for two hours, but all we're doing is sitting in silence facing the same direction? That feels like a missed opportunity. Uh, so that brought me way into the world of experimental theater and immersive theater and into what I did get my degree in, something called relational performance, uh, which is using art specifically as a means to foster empathy between people. Um, so that is, that's where my world is. That got me to where I am today, doing all the wacky, wonderful things that I love to do. And right love now you're that. learning with a collective downtown. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I just finished with them. Um, some dear, dear people. Big fans of theirs. It's always worth spending time with them. The New York Neo-Futurists. I love their work. Um, specifically because they are all about authenticity in theater. So all the work they do, they cannot play any characters besides themselves. They cannot pretend there's any different place that they are than the theater. They cannot pretend it's any different time than the time it's being performed. Um, And any actions they do cannot be mimicked. So like if they're drinking alcohol, it's real alcohol. You know, if someone's getting punched in the face, it's a real punch. And so it makes their work so much more interesting because it takes away not just like a fourth wall, but it takes away any type of facade that theater can give people. It's just so, so wonderful. That's wild. I, I know them. we've been talking about it for months and I'm, I'm going to go see it one Friday. Please, please, we'll come together. It'll be great. Yes, I love it. Well, we asked Lee to join us today as we talk about the heartbreaking but beautiful play, Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt. It's a play about a wealthy VNS. Jewish family who it takes place over like 50 years time so it's you see them growing up and you see them during the uh, World War II times with the Nazis and how it tragically ends. The playwright Sir Tom Stoppard is intimately familiar with this concept as all four of his grandparents were murdered at concentration camps and he has noted that he tried to write this not from a personal perspective. And that's why he made it about a VNS family as opposed to about his actual family. But it is to an extent something he is familiar with. It also has a very steep cast of 38 people and a large portion from the original production in London that came out in 2020 did transfer over to Broadway when it opened October 2nd of 2022. So what did we know about this play before it came out? And what were you kind of like expecting when you went to see it? My full transparent disclosure is I knew very, very little. I knew it was supposed to be a very good Jewish play. And I knew I would feel like a bad Jew if I didn't go and see it, uh, which is the honest truth of it. Um, But I didn't know too much more besides that it was going to head in the direction of tragedy. Uh, but unfortunately, that kind of feels like a, a long-standing tradition. Uh, so it 
that's really all I knew going into it. Yeah, I knew that it was about a Jewish family and I knew that they were going sort of up and through the Holocaust. I was told that it, it would be sort of like Diary of Anne Frank vibes kind of thing. Um, so I kind of knew it was going to be sad. And then I heard through the grapevine of working in Broadway theaters that before it even opened, they got bomb threats to the theater. And my regular, when I was at six, our regular bomb sniffing dog and handler who would come and, and visit us, uh, he was like, well, I'm not going to be back for a while because I'm going to be full-time outside uh, the Longacre Theater for Leopoldstadt for that. And then just like continuing on that, because I knew that that had happened, I left six and then uh, now I work on Parade. And so for our mm-hmm. previews, we got protesters, anti-Semitic protesters outside of Parade. And we got a really nice note that came from the company of Leopoldstadt saying, you know, we're with you and we stand behind you. And, you know, this is inappropriate and you know, thank you for doing what you're doing and that kind of stuff. And so it was just like knowing all of the background of all of that stuff that happened. I was like, wow, this is, yeah, we live in an interesting America in 2023. We do. I remember that day quite well. I was with you, Courtney. I don't know if you, you remember. Sure were. I was with you when I found that out, what was happening at Parade. Uh, that was uh, a real, I felt every ounce of my being get angry and I'm not an angry person but the fact that it is 2023 and that is something that is actually needing to be thought about you know that it's still something I don't like fully admitting to myself because that feels so unreal to me you know yeah it's just shocking um, Noel had just messaged me right before y'all had all come in and so like I walked up and I think that was like the first thing I said to you and you were like I just heard too and like Mm -hmm. it was yeah that was a it was a day it was a day indeed we've all seen the play so after seeing it what were your thoughts following up so the first thing that I had in my head um it's a bit of a weird comparison because um I know a little bit of Tom Stoppard but really the only other play of his I'm super familiar with is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead which is his most famous piece so that makes sense but um a reason I've always liked that work of art just like structurally is just how funny it is that these two people just don't realize that they're in Hamlet that like that's the whole bit that they are in this seminal work of art this thing of like utmost generational importance and they just don't realize it. Uh, and that was the comparison I first made because it's <laughs> kind of the same thing in Leopoldstadt um, in this very strange way, you know? Um, the play takes place from 1899 to, I want to say 1955, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning of the show, the first hour, almost hour and a half of the show, they have no reason to um to think that there's something wrong. And that's so, there's some dramatic irony that as an audience member was just, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, um, but almost just wanting to like yell at the characters and be like, we know what's going to happen to like do something. I don't know. That, that was my, the big thing that I was thinking about coming from it. Yeah, it's interesting because you sort of see, like in Cabaret with Fraulein Schneider, you sort of see the um, the progression of like being in that world and doing what you need to do in order to get through it. And so you see that a lot in this too, of, you know, what it's like to... I don't like to make this comparison because it seems like a little bit of a stretch, especially through the tragedies that we've had, but we've sort of seen it in our own, you know, political climate that we've had where it's like things start very small and it becomes, you know, making these really small concessions in order to, you know, continue to get along or to continue to do what you feel like you need to do 
And then these, you know, political powers take more and more. And so when we sit here and think like, oh, what did our grandparents do? Or what did people do in these time periods, like dealing with the stuff? Like how didn't, how did they not stand and stop and, you know, fight? And it's like, well, how do you do that when you're just one person? And how do you do that when it's like, you have like, your whole family is at stake and things like that. And so it was sort of, it was really powerful to me to sort of witness that and to see how they grow to go through that and to see this these like mixed families you know they're not all Jewish at the beginning and they've sort of intermarried and so that's sort of an interesting concept too to look at um and like for me I you know when I was growing up my cousin used to call me Jew-ish because I would go to all of the Jewish holidays and do all the things with like the Jewish side of my family, but I was not raised Jewish. And so she would always tell me, she's like, you know, you're more Jewish than like some of the actual Jewish people that I know. And so she's like, you're like very Jew-ish, honorary Jew. And so it's like from that like point of it and having grown up, you know, knowing this background and things like that, it's kind of interesting to watch and sort of see it unfold in front of you and like let me tell you that I was sobbing like a fucking baby at the end oh yeah (laughs) one of the little girls so we're in the front row right because we did the lottery tickets and so we're like right in the front row and the show's over and we're doing the standing ovation and there's you know it's quiet and they're doing their bows and I'm like sobbing like a mess and the little girl is like right in front of me and she's just like looks at me like dead in the eyes and she like looked at me like I was crazy you're in the saddest show ever and (laughs) you're looking at me like I'm crazy but okay it's fine we're all fine it's great (sighs) (laughs) and also it's such a large cast it takes them so long to get through their uh bowels at the end so a lot of crying for quite a while it's an endurance test Noelle that's impressive absolutely like okay it's fine everything's fine yeah it was yeah I get it it. I totally get it it very much tugged at the heartstrings um especially because you know we talk about how and this is something that's frequently on my mind is the idea that there are a lot of tragedies in the world a lot of disparities in the world Um, And a lot of them have absolutely nothing to do with me. Uh, So it is interesting when we talk about things like empathy or things like wanting to help or all of that, of the difference of, you know, how do you cope with those feelings when you do have a more direct connection with them uh, versus when you don't. And that's actually kind of a plot point, you know, at the end of the idea that one of the characters just really doesn't understand the weight of all of this, uh, which is true. You know, we think about things in the world that were terrible, terrible things. Um, and we think about like great American tragedies or great global tragedies. And that's what we think of them as, you know? Uh, we don't think of them as something that actually meant something to a person or to a family that's a it's a bubble we tend to cope with we make that distance for ourselves and having to come to terms with breaking that distance is not easy it really is not so yeah it's it's hard to see it's hard to hear um especially you know, I don't know how deep we want to delve into like the specifics of what happened in the show, but like having to have someone who just thought of the Holocaust as this global war and tragedy basically be forced into hearing how it very specifically affects him and how it yeah. very specifically affects his family is just so heart wrenching. Well, and I feel like we saw like with COVID that a lot of people don't understand the gravity of situations unless it's directly affecting them, which like personally, I don't understand because I emotionally feel way too much about things in the world that have nothing to do with me. 
but like it's one of those things like it's sad to me to think that we're in a place that we are like a hundred years eight no nah, not quite 80 years after and there are still people who are like Holocaust deniers. And so it's like the importance of this show is it's so relevant now. And that there are people who are, you know, so like, how do we have so much rising anti-Semitism in this country right now? Like, how do we have, how have we gotten to a place where it's so important? And like, maybe part of it is because I grew up with a bunch of Jewish family members. Maybe part of it is the fact that like, I was intimately familiar with the diary of Anne Frank when I was like six years old. Like that was my introduction to that show. I was like five or six. And so, you know, all of these things that have been, you know, the cultural impact that it has had and how it's like sort of pervaded through the years and like even you know in high school we went to the museum of tolerance and mm -hmm. i remember like holding my friend's hand like the whole time because i just like sobbed through the entire museum all of these things i don't understand how we still have people who are like oh you know that 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 didn't happen or that doesn't matter or we should be over it or something like that like i i don't get it yeah, it's a that is a hard thing to try to understand. I I don't have a good answer either. Of I will tell you if it makes maybe some type of interesting comparison. Um, as you know, one of my many ways of making money in this world is that I teach at the September 11th Museum, uh, which is a whole other world of tragedy, but something that is also crucial. sobbed through that museum oh yeah yeah you, you get used <laughs> to it but, um, but something that i think is so important about that museum um, conceptually is that it has to be in the exact place where that event happened um so you think you think about like there's many different holocaust museums around the world and this guy has been to most of them. And um, that's all very important. And it's important that there can be multiple that can be so accessible. Um, the big difference being this is in a something that happened that almost every person who is alive does not remember it personally. Right. Uh, but when we talk about something called September 11th, you know, it's the other way around. The vast, vast majority of people who come to that museum remember that day vividly. Um, and a vast, vast majority of those people, um, because this was, you know, this was witnessed by a third of the human race live, um, but a vast majority of those people were watching on television or heard on the radio um, or even like a primitive form of the internet in 2001, I don't know. But because of that, we go back to that idea of distance. Most of the people who remember that day have a safe distance from it because of that. Uh, and. I, that's not, you know, to say that any story should bear any more or less weight than any other, but it is to say that that distance does change things for people. Uh, for many of those people, it can be like a healthy coping mechanism, which is awesome. But for a subsect of those people, being able to create distance between the actual thing that happened and your memory of it can be super problematic as you can imagine. And it leads to those things like believing things that aren't true or coming up with some alternative viewpoint of an event or, or whatever. Um, and so the reason why, at least this is like me thinking about this, trying to make sense of this at that museum specifically, why it's so important that you can actually you know, see the foundations of where the Twin Towers once stood. You can get your hands on World Trade Center steel. You know, you can do all of that. Um, because then you are forcibly breaking that distance, uh, which makes it so much more difficult to try to hold those beliefs. Um, so we think about the necessity of a show like Leopold Seth, and we think about like why it had to be done in the way that it was done. And maybe a part of it was, you know, sometimes people need a slap in the face. If sometimes people need to be confronted with this dead on um even again going back like not just from the audience but the literal characters in the show 
only fully understand the grieving weight of this when they are forced to. Uh, it's right. it's an interesting comparison, I think. I think so. And I think um, one thing about the distance is I know I grew up in the South and I didn't have a lot of Jewish communities around me. So I didn't grow up with, I mean, I read Anne Franken's school and like I knew about the Holocaust, obviously, but that was pretty much it. And so I would have never like, I was so distant from it emotionally like empathetically like I just didn't have any understanding and so I do agree that those having those museums everywhere is helpful and having shows like this like it was nominated for six Tonys which means like people are going to hear about it and yeah. it's ways like this that they're actually getting that knowledge out there and connecting with people and you have people like Joshua Molina in the show who really helps like people are like oh my god I watched Scandal now I'm gonna watch this show like so it helps kind of bridge crowds which I think is very important so this was the first Tom Chopper play I'd ever seen. And I know y'all talked about one other. Are there any other that you're familiar with that have any of these same lines? Or is this kind of a brand new one as far as you know? Uh, the, the only big difference I know, because I don't know too much more, but I do know Stoppard is a very introspective high concept analytical kind of guy and you can see that in his works where he will somehow throw in these like crazy scientific concepts or mathematical formulas or whatever um and it's coming from someone who eats that shit up but this play was like so different than that uh, it was very, he did throw math in there and I very much rolled my eyes when he did because I was like, of course he did. But um, but it was such a down to earth family story uh, that felt so unique. And he said this once and it, and it seems to generally be agreed that this is going to be the last play he writes. Uh, that's, this is supposedly it for him. Uh, which maybe makes sense that this is like a, a I mean, coda on that type of career. He's, he's also been writing, man, but <laughs> he's been writing plays for sixty right, years. Right, right, so, <laughs> like he's eighty-five. Um, yeah, he wrote also, he's had yeah. a done screenwriting, like he's real good. He could totally yeah, use like a, a good nap, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it makes sense that theoretically that this is is where he cuts himself off. Um, something Absolutely. that is both very personal um, and very humble, for lack of a better term. I think um, it'll be really interesting if this show um, becomes as, you know, popular and well-known as, like you're saying, like, you know, Rosen's, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead was one of his really early plays and it's his most well-known, but it's it's funny, um, I don't know. I know you said you don't know the show, but Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is a movie with uh, Gary Oldman, if you've ever seen that. And it's the same. Okay. Well, it's like, it's funny. Um, it's like these. It's very funny. Like two guys that have no idea what the hell they're doing. It's very, it feels very um, Monty Python-esque. Mm -hmm. um, it has those, you know, kind of vibes, but it was written in like 1964 or something like that. Um, and so it's, it, it's interesting because, you know, he really hit an audience with that. Um, and it, and it holds up, I think, especially because, you know, people still study Shakespeare and people still have, you know, varying opinions on Shakespeare and so it's sure. uh it's very amusing you know we were talking about this the other day Courtney you and I um it's very amusing to sort of take these side characters that you see in a couple of different Shakespeare shows and sort of put them in as the center of this comedy and so then you have this one which is like so on the opposite spectrum where it's like about real real emotions and real connections and real going through the motions of all of the stuff and living through these horrible tragedies and dealing with all of the con consequences isn't the right word but all of the effects that happen from that you know like dealing with these situations and so it, it's interesting because I think you know we're still seeing Diary von Frank being done today and so I could feel I I know I'm jumping ahead of your normal questions, but I do feel like the show could be something that we could see being done 
still in in 50 years and i hope that it will won't be having necessarily the same impact in the next 50 years and that we're like it's so important because we see so much negativity towards this group of people and these you know but that we're sort of seeing it as a way of like we a way to learn about those situations rather than as a way to combat i guess the like people who are trying to say that these things weren't important or that they never happened or that there are lies about the history of it and all of that you know I feel like it'll still be really important especially culturally but in a way to to teach people rather than in like like it's so important because people don't believe that this was real yeah Um, so on that same note Lee what do you think listeners need to know about this play either before going in or takeaways Uh, I think a big, well, first of all, because I don't know, hearing everything we've been talking about doesn't seem like the best advertisement. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. It's such a good show. It's just sad. Bring tissue. Yes, correct. But also, it's worth It's like the show's five acts. It's five different periods of time. And it's not all sad. In fact, a lot of it was like laugh out loud hilarious. Yes. yes. Um, because, Absolutely. and that goes deeper into this whole, you know, at the end of the day, this was just like a family being a family, um, not really understanding what was happening in the outside world until it slaps them in the face and they have to confront it. Um, so there is a lot of this show that's just like, family dramedy just you know seeing a family living their life and going through different holidays and milestones and all of that which I think is very interesting to note and uh, that again that's just me wrapping myself in circles about this idea of how as an audience seeing this show knowing how it's going to end before it happens is just like heart-wrenching but it's not all sad, but the other, the other big interesting thing, if we're talking about things to sort of maybe come to terms with going into it, um, as someone who does have a, a deep background in Jewish history, um, is the idea that, and I think people know this on some intuitive level, um, but the Jewish people have been through the ringer uh, more than once way more than once it's the the old saying that every jewish holiday is just talking about how the jews were gonna die and then they didn't and now let's eat some food but it's <laughs> that's just what it is that's just the reality of it if you look back in history going all the way back and back and back and back and back to if you want to look at it that way to like biblical times even like all that happened was, you know, there was someone or some power trying to kill Jews and then yep. they weren't killed. Hoorah. Something that I say alluded to, but I think they actually are more direct with it than I remember it being, is at the beginning of the show, you know, we're just in the aftermath of World War, or no, we're just in the beginning, excuse me, of what's going to happen with World War One, let alone World War Two. But there's all that stuff that precedes it, where the characters in the show are almost blasé about the fact that they are Jewish because it doesn't really matter because there's no way anything bad's going to happen to the Jews because they've already had the bad things happen to them. I think that's that's an interesting context. Well, one of the things that I noticed just having grown up the way that I grew up and knowing about, like, it's interesting because Judaism is the only religion or culture that really focuses on the matrilineal line because mm-hmm. there's no there's no argument there there's there's no argument about who's the mother in a family because baby pops out of the mother like it's obviously the mother's no matter who the father is and so it's definitely something that i uh you know my cousin is i call her super jew because she uh (laughs) 
she went to Hebrew school as a kid and we grew up and we went to college and she studied Jewish education and she studied, yeah, Jewish studies and like all of these things. And she works at a temple and all these things. Right. And then she married somebody who, you know, worked in a temple also. And so like, you know, they're just like super Jews together and I love them. And so it was interesting because like when she got married, it was this whole thing about us going and uh, going to temple to get to have her wedding be blessed. And I was so concerned, like so concerned about dressing appropriately to go to temple and I'm not Jewish. Right. And so I was like, okay, I know I have to have my knees covered. I know I have to have my shoulders covered, like all these things. Right. And so I like was very careful about how I dressed and even like one of her other bridesmaids is Orthodox. And so, you know, I took the stairs with her and, you know, avoided do it. You know, I'd like turn on lights for her or whatever. And like do all the stuff that like I can do because I'm not Jewish and she's Orthodox. So she can't turn on the lights and she can't hit the buttons and she can't like do any of that kind of stuff. Right on Saturday. And so we're like doing all these things and I go and her other cousin is like tank top short dress like all these things and I'm like looking at it and it's like and my cousin was like yeah you you know like you're caring more because it me it matters to you you know all these things you know and these people who were who grew up in it but aren't necessarily like like super focused on on all of that like aren't super religious aren't super focused in it you know it, it doesn't matter as much to them and so it's very interesting the concept to me that I, I learned when she was going to college and hanging out with the Jewish fraternity and you know do and doing all that stuff like the idea of cultural Judaism versus the idea of religious Judaism and so yeah you could touch on that for us yeah heck yeah don't know Um, it yeah that also you know talking about other good like prerequisite it's it goes into a good point of I think when we are young um especially when you're like not Jewish or don't know many people who are Jewish um and especially if you have a Christian background it's very easy to be like oh yeah so Christianity is just like this big bubble term, right? Because we also have, we have the Catholics, the Protestants, the Baptists, the, you know, the, the, all these, these bunch of other things. We have all these different things. Then we also have the Jews as a separate thing. Um, but I think that is, makes it very easy to forget that the Jews are the exact same way. <laughs> you know, there are a yeah. million different types um, it's a real just like pick your poison type of whatever works for you. There's definitely a group that agrees with it, especially, you know, not in America. If we're going like into yeah. places like Israel, but also just places like around Europe. It's the the type of Jew varies literally from city to city, from, from neighborhood to neighborhood, uh, which is fascinating and beautiful. Uh, and it also goes into such a unique difference between Judaism and say like Christianity which is when people think Christianity they think a religion end of sentence and all the other aspects of a Christian life if I can use that term is dependent on where you're located you know if you're from America you're doing your American customs and then your religious Christian stuff. If you're from France, you're doing your France customs and then you have your Christian stuff. But with Judaism, it's all wrapped into the same thing. You know, it's more than just a religion. It, it has language, it has art, it has music, it has dance, it has food. Uh, it has all these wonderful things that are not just religion. And that's something that is global, uh, which is very different and that leads to those conversations about being quote-unquote culturally jewish which is a a very modern term Um, but the idea of making the religious side of judaism not the primary Um, and even though the religious jews may not always say that religion is the most important part of the jewish stuff for them Um, it's just ingrained in it but being culturally Jewish is someone saying, you know, I'm going to care a lot more about the music. I'm going to care a lot more about the arts. I am going to follow the lovely traditions and the family con like constructs and customs and all that wonderful stuff and just sort of push the religious stuff to the side. Whereas, you know, say religious Judaism, which is a, a 
interesting term to use, but it's when you say that it's not, it's either putting religion as the primary out of that list of different things or saying it is just automatically ingrained in all those other things. Jews speak Hebrew and Hebrew is the language of the Jews, the religious Jews. So it's like not separating them, but intertwining them. That was a very long-winded answer. I hope that maybe gives a little bit of, of context into all of that. Yeah, it's inter- It's always been interesting to me um, when I was studying religions and just, you know, like looking into all of this kind of stuff. It was always interesting to me because I knew people who were not religious, but were Jewish. And so that was always kind of interesting because you don't, you sort of see it in Christianity, but like only in that you see quote unquote religious people who don't follow any of the teachings of being religious people. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of like, okay, you're religious, but like, you're not really religious. So it's like, but it's not the same at all. It was always interesting to me, to people that I know that were like, oh yeah, well, I'm Jewish, but like, I'm not religious. Yeah. And to add a whole other wrench into this, for what it's worth, we talk about how there's a bunch of different sects or of denominations of Judaism or whatever word you want to use. Um, And those have ebbed and flowed, added and subtracted over millennia. Um, But one that is relatively recent, and I say relatively recent because it's probably 100 50, 200 years old at this point, um, is the idea of the reform Jew or of the reformed Jew, which is the way I was raised, which is, I think it's misconstrued that the Orthodox Jews are the most Jewy, if you will. <laughs> um, and, um, and then as you go into like conservative Jews, and they're like, they're kind of Jewy. Um, and then the reform Jews, they like aren't really super Jewish at all. The, there's a running joke that the the reformed Jews think the Orthodox Jews are crazy, unbelievable traditionalists that they shouldn't even be considered Jews. And then the Orthodox Jews say the reformed Jews aren't doing anything that's normal in religion. They shouldn't be considered Jews. So there's a lot of like fighting there. But One of the interesting things about the concept of reform Judaism is the idea of leaning a lot more into the society and cultures and customs outside of the religion and of the things in wherever they are, be it America or Europe or wherever. And so now it's changed a little bit over the years, but in for lack of a better term, traditional reform Judaism in the beginning of that movement. People were insistent, we're not going to say a word of Hebrew anymore. We're done with Hebrew. We're going to use whatever language is spoken where we live. We are, that's just like one example. And again, that's ebbed and flowed and changed over the years. But um, another good word to describe that, which is a word that comes up a lot in Leopoldstadt, is assimilation. Um, Is a lot of people put those two concepts hand in hand until it became more and more evident in the creation of Reformed Judaism and in its ebbing and flowing and growing is that it's not as easy as just flipping off a switch. Uh, It has to be a little more nuanced than that. Um, So if you look at your Reformed Jew in America today, uh, you know, it's usually someone who can say the prayers, but it's not really sure what they mean, of someone who... Um, will go to services, will have their own space, you know, things like that. Like traditional Reformed Jews didn't have a temple. They would, you know, they'd go to people's apartments and they'd pray. All of this to say that in Leopoldstadt, there is this incessant need from the main family to assimilate and to the idea of Reform Judaism wasn't really a thing in the time of that play, more or less, especially not in Vienna. But similar concepts of, you know, we are still Jewish, but more importantly, we're Austrian, you know, we are upper middle class members of society. And as the play goes on, all of the people who aren't in that family, who interact with the family, make it abundantly clear that that's not how it works. Uh, It's not as easy as that. You can't just pick one. Um, You have to be both and you have to deal with the consequences that come with it. 
if there are consequences that come with it. Yeah, it's very interesting. A lot of the things that the play hits because there's like the woman who is sleeping with the German soldier and, you know, is her child his or is her child her husband's and they even hit on the circumcision as because that's sort of a big I don't I don't know I feel like we've gone back and forth like in in my lifetime anyway of like whether or not this is like okay and like what are we doing and and so first it was like you know really weird that they were doing it and then now it's like medically uh, at least in the U.S., like most hospitals will do that when when you're born. And so then now like Jewish people have to be like, no, you can't do that because we have, you know, a whole ceremony and like all the stuff that, that that we do for it. And then there is there's definitely been discussions about like, oh, you know, is that really traumatizing to the child or whatever who can't make memories yet? But uh, I don't remember it. Like, <laughs> you know? there's all these things you know everybody has an opinion yeah so it's it's interesting all of the things that are sort of slipped in there just very naturally all these little pieces of you know being being a jewish person being part of a jewish family yeah i argue the the ultimate jewish question is what does it mean to be jewish and and the question is really different depending on who you ask you know yeah you ask some people And the answer is you have to follow these hundreds and hundreds of different rules and and ways of being. And if you ask someone else, you might just say, if you say you're Jewish, you're Jewish. Um, You know, it's there's all those different lines and there's such a spectrum there. I'll give you a a brief personal anecdote if you'll indulge me. Um, Of course. I, I was raised by two Jewish parents in a nice big Jewish family, which is a whole other conversation. But I am also a child of surrogacy, um, which means that my biological mother, who did not raise me, but who I am biologically related to, is not Jewish. Um, So even though I was raised by two Jewish parents, by paper, I was not a Jew, which was bizarre. And if we are talking you know, the 21st century in America, which is where I was going to be raised into, who gives a shit? Like, I'm being raised Jewish, I'm Jewish, you know? What else matters there? But my parents, being the super Jewy parents that they are, were concerned, and they thought of the one in a million case scenario that when I become an adult, I decide to move to Israel and I fall in love with some Orthodox girl and I decide I want to get married to her and I wouldn't be able to because I wasn't by Jewish law a Jew. So when I was an infant infant, I was converted to Judaism. I went through a religious conversion within my first week of being alive, um, where we had to go into a mikvah, which is like the Jewish equivalent of um, like a baptism. And I guess that's the best comparison to be made. And they had to say this whole prayer. I was dunked underwater and like, hoorah, I'm a Jew. Uh, but what is really interesting about that, and this is where I need to like cut myself off, otherwise I'm going to go into real existential crisis mode. A very important tenant of Judaism is that Jews do not proselytize. They, if you've ever seen like the Jews on the streets of New York who are like, hey, are you Jewish? Hey, are you Jewish? If you say yes, they'll talk to you for hours. If you say no, they'll say, have a good day. Uh, They're not going to try to convince you of anything that you don't believe in, Um, which is really important. But that's also important to me because little infant Lee was converted without his consent because I was an infant. I couldn't consent to anything. Uh, So by Jewish law, when I turned 13 years old, I became a bar mitzvah. Um, I had the whole ceremony and had the party, all that nonsense. But me becoming a bar mitzvah up on the bima, on the podium, reading Torah, that was by Jewish law, me consensually exclaiming to the world that I wanted to be Jewish. And that was formally the end of my 13 year long conversion. 
which is such a fascinating thought to think of. That's all fine and dandy. Uh, the other wrench in that story is I didn't know any of that until I was like 17. So, so it still was not me actually making any decision for myself, but would I have it any other way? No. All of this to be say that Judaism as a concept is so nuanced, but so is every religion. Um, the idea of, of what does it really mean to be a part of that type of group? I am in the mindset of there shouldn't be one answer. I'm in the mindset that if you want to be something, if you believe you're something, then you have the right to believe that and you have the right to be that thing, which goes way beyond religion. But I think that's such an interesting thought that I kept coming back to in watching this family trying to ebb and deal with what it is to be Jewish for them and all the different ways they went with that because some leaned super into the Judaism, some tried to push away, some stopped being Jewish altogether. Yeah. Um, all these different answers to the same question. Again, I, I'm rambling, but we sort of have an idea with what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no it's this is good. Great. Yeah. I totally have two anecdotes and neither of them are mine. So it's great. It's interesting because at the very beginning, they have a Christmas tree. And I remember mm -hmm. when I was a kid, so my parents got divorced, my cousin's parents got divorced. And for a while, my dad and my aunt like lived in the same house. And then she moved out and my like uncle, step uncle, whatever moved in. And so like my cousin and I like shared a room and we like spent a bunch of time together. And that was the thing, like when I was a kid, my dad always had a Christmas tree and my cousin always like loved to decorate the Christmas tree. And for me, I was like, this is so boring. I never want to do this for the rest of my life. And my cousin was so into it. Like she's Jewish and she was just like Christmas tree. And then when we were like in middle school, high school, she like really wanted a Hanukkah bush to decorate. And my, <laughs> my aunt was like, absolutely not. You cannot have a Hanukkah bush because it's not a real thing. <laughs> We we're like but so, so, so she would always come over and she wanted to help like decorate the christmas tree and like do all this stuff because like her dad was not jewish and so grew up with that and so like that's sort of how we had this thing as kids but then also so my cousin went to hebrew school and made like a best friend at hebrew school and so this is like actually sarah's story so like hi sarah if you're listening i'm telling your story i'm so sorry but so sarah was raised jewish you know, went to Hebrew school and, and, and did all this stuff. And, but her mom was not Jewish. And so as an adult, when she came, she wanted to connect deeper with her Jewish faith. And so it was really important to her to like become Orthodox, but to the Orthodox church, she was not considered Jewish because her mother wasn't Jewish. And so she converted, even though she was raised Jewish and was always Jewish and had never practiced any other religion than Judaism, she went through the whole conversion ceremony to be considered Jewish. And so that was always really interesting to me too, because she, you know, for the Orthodox church, they would not have accepted that she was Jewish, even though she was raised that way yeah. and spoke Hebrew and it's, did all that. It's fascinating to me, yeah. um, all of those different lines. Um, which is, again, that's something that's also pretty evident in Christianity. It's not just a Jewish thing, but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not often thought of as a Jewish thing, at least when you're not a Jew. So I, I think that is so interesting to talk about. I think non-Jews don't understand so much because when, like, I mean, I don't really know how it is in other religions, but like for Christianity, you can sort of be like, okay, I accept Jesus as my, you know, savior. And so now I'm a Christian. That's Except it. Except for you know? yeah. Catholicism. Okay, well. Catholicism, I, you have to go through like a, a year program and study and, be and baptized. learn. And, yes. And be baptized again. You're meant to be baptized as a child, but they will let you go through this whole process. But it's it's over a year long. I know I was um, baptized as an infant and they went to my mom and they were like, it wasn't even a church we went to because we weren't Catholic, but both of my parents were raised Catholic, my dad and my mom. And so yeah. I, you know, it was important to my mom that I was baptized. And so went and he was like, okay, here's, you know, her baptism certificate. If you get any grief from any of the Catholic schools, have them call me 
basically because you know because we'll you know verify that this is like a true catholic you know baptism or whatever but i was never confirmed i was never like none of that you know and like good because i'm glad that my parents and this was mostly my dad but i'm glad that my parents you know let me sort of do my own thing and so i was able to sort of like explore and do whatever and now i've I've, i don't know i'm I, I find myself Christian, but like more spiritual and like sort of religiously open. Like I believe in higher power, but I don't really know. I don't know. I don't really like organized religion at this point in my life from the stuff that I've studied. And that's just my personal, you know, thing. I want to be open to, to whatever, but yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting to see, you know, how strict some things are and how sort of open other things are. And being from the LGBTQ community, that sort of makes me a little bit more like, I don't know, I don't like a lot of organized religion because they really like to be (laughs) anti-LGBTQ. And so, you know, there's that too. And so, I don't know. I'm just like, why can't we just, hello, let let me quote Jesus real quick for everybody. Why can't we just all (laughs) like love each other? Like family (laughs) and shit? I don't know. Love thy neighbor as thyself or something. Hello, Christians whoever. I I have a similar background. I was raised mostly Southern Baptist, but my mom was raised super Catholic, like in the schools and everything. So I wasn't baptized Catholic. I wasn't confirmed, but I went to like all these different masses and all the different big events with the Catholic churches and stuff. And then I went to Catholic um, law school. So like I've been through it all it and like I always saw how strict it was and because I didn't I didn't know much about Judaism until I moved here um I learned a lot more because then I went to um Cardozo in my last semester and it's a yeshiva school and so I learned a lot more coming from strict quote-unquote catholic school to Cardozo in the middle of New York City and it was it was always very wild to me and it's I've always been very interested in learning more because I I do you know obviously know that I don't know hardly anything. And so that's one of the reasons I liked, you know, going to Leopoldstadt so much too, because I feel like I just, I just keep learning. And that is important because not enough people know it about it. Yeah. Well, we're at a very interesting place in New York City too, because uh, again, I'm going to steal something from a friend, a, a different friend, Sarah. Hi, other Sarah. something she said to me that I found really funny is she was like I don't think I can ever leave the New York City area because even you know and she's not like super super religious but she is very she feels very culturally Jewish and um one of the things she said to me one time is she was like well uh I don't think I can leave New York City because even in New York City the most Christian person is still a little bit Jewish And so she's like, I don't think I can go other places where like, like, again, like in Louisiana or whatever, where you're like, I don't even think I know anybody who's Jewish. It's just like Jewish delis. And it's sort of like in this sort of New York City culture that, you know, you see the Hasidic Jews Mm -hmm. walking around. And uh, in my neighborhood, I see the Hasidic Jews walking around all the time. And so it's like, you sort of just see all of this and it's like, that's just life, you know? Yeah. And it makes a difference being exposed to that, I think. It's true. There's more Jews in New York than there are in Israel. So so New York has Jews down, you know? We're the Jew place. And maybe that's something I take it for granted. But I, I also grew up in Connecticut where even I was like an hour away from where I am now, I could count the amount of Jews I went to school with on my hands. Like, I, I didn't really know many either. It's just the reality of it. One of the reasons I'm very thankful for the religious upbringing I had. Um, my mother was raised in a culturally Jewish household. Uh, my father was raised in an Orthodox household. Um, so my father's side of the family you go generations back they were in the tenements of the lower east side like they didn't speak english in new york they spoke yiddish in new york you know so it's like i had these very separate jewish upbringings that because of that when i was coming around i was fortunate enough to get introduced to so much more than one way to look at the religion um i was introduced to so many different groups of people who each had their own different beliefs and 
Um, my parents were always more than willing. Whenever I said I wanted to do something Jewish, they would push me over to do it because they would be so happy for me. <laughs> so I'm very lucky in that manner. And it was given me a very good holistic view. I feel like because I've gotten such a, a wide view of what Judaism's like, I have a much wider understanding of how religion can act in somebody's life just as a whole. Well, I do want to bring it back around to the play before we finish up. Yeah, what play was it? You know, the one <laughs> we you know, just, what just do we watch? Random play. What are we, what are we doing? Uh, I'm sorry, am I the queen of uh, I'm to bring it up. I kept going back. Just about I kept everything. going back. You did. I noticed. You were no, this very a- goodly. Thank you for trying to bring me back because that's usually what Courtney has to do. <laughs> usually my job but it was such a great conversation that I thought it was I thought it was good to keep it going so yeah I think it'll be interesting for our listeners I hope you listeners find it interesting because I think it's interesting yeah Um, it's a lot of stuff that people don't know yeah absolutely I mean I I learned a lot I didn't know a lot so I'm learning and I'm here Um, now you're officially a um a JBA a Jew by association so exciting (laughs) love it so what doors do you think this show has opened moving forward what do you think we can do now with theater that maybe we didn't do before I'll open this for you Lee it's interesting because historically theater and Judaism are actually pretty hand in hand like just like historically Um, and you see that in a lot of famous plays over the years being very Jewish very musicals also being very Jewish and even recently we've had a couple of big ones besides like parade being revived like this now um but also I feel like funny girl like funny girl's a big one Uh, the big one I'm thinking about even though it was probably like six years ago at this point was indecent um that was a a very important Jewish piece it was also a very important queer piece that I'm enjoying this little revival of bringing these types of stories in. Um, I also, it is worth noting that even though we are all from the city, the place where, again, more Jews here than in the country of Israel, Jews are still 2% of the population. You know, it is still a tiny, tiny group of people, minuscule. We just happen to be in the most populated area of them in the world. Yeah. Uh, so it's easy to take that for granted. And I think I think it's important that those stories get told. Um, but I also think it's important, and this doesn't just go for Judaism, but where there are stories told about people um, experiencing intersectionality in whatever way, because this family is dealing with how Judaism fits in with all of the other aspects of their lives. You know, it's more than just them just dealing with being Jewish. It's it's bigger than that. And I think it is great to see such a well-received piece be yeah. about that. Um, you know, we talk about shows um, that have different representation of race and gender and sexuality and how something that I think we're leaning towards in the world of art, which I love, is when shows can have that type of inclusivity without being about that type of inclusivity. Um, I, yes. think, I think that is such an awesome thing that's happening. Um, and I think even though, you know, through and through, Leopold's that's a Jewish show about Jews, it feels like a nice runway of making it the Judaism just one aspect of a bigger story of how that can happen in other places in our art, I think is really nice to see. Well, and I think that's, too, that's when cool. when we talk about diversity and and inclusion, people don't generally think about religion or, you know, cultural um, backgrounds like this as part of that. And so that's one of the things that I, from the get-go of Unseen Artists, I've been sort of 
you know, trying to focus on is it's not just about like looking at people like this is not the greatest way to say this maybe, but like just looking at people and being like, oh, it looks more diverse because I'm looking at, you know, it looks colorful kind of thing. It's about content and it's about authenticity. Like that's the biggest thing for me is authenticity. I want to see things that are more relevant to like what people go through day to day. And so that's why I think, you know, Leopold Stat is a really, really important show for people is because we're actually seeing the real time life of people who are Jewish going through all of these different, you know, parts of life. Um, in these different time periods and Jews have sort of hit kind of the bad what's the opposite of a jackpot like the Jill not (laughs) (laughs) not the greatest (laughs) you know I studied in in my undergrad I studied witch accusations throughout history and some of the early ones People think it's very, you know, which is, oh, it's very like anti-women, but that's not how it started. Um, Mm -hmm. It sort of became that way, you know, as we got later, but in the really early witch trials, especially in Europe, it was against Jews and Muslims. Mm. And it was all very religion based. And there was even, you know, witch trials against, you know, the Catholics against the Protestants, because like, you're not really, you know, you're not really Christian if you're thinking this, that or the other thing. But so it's very interesting, like just people trying to exist as themselves in their own communities and, and not being able to and being persecuted for that. And so, you know, again, we're seeing that now again, which is sad and disheartening. But so that's why I think it's really important for us to see these shows again. I think it's it's powerful and interesting. And, I, and I'm glad because I was really nervous that I wasn't going to be able to see the show. But it's been extended like three times. And it just, just keeps still going, running, right? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. Like more and more people want to see it. I'm glad that people want to see it. Because I think that it's incredible. And I think even beyond this, once it's, you know, done with Broadway and it's done with its tours and stuff and other shows are able to, uh, or I should say other theaters are able to do it. I think it'll be one of those things. It is a very large cast. So that's sort of a challenge to deal with when you're dealing with like community theaters and things like that. But I think regional theaters could do it really well and things like that. So I'm hoping that we can see it done more regularly and hopefully it can become more of a staple. For people yeah, 100% completely agree yeah I agree as we record this a week from now is when it will be released which is a week before the Tonys so speaking mm. of good reception it was nominated for six Tonys so I will mention them before we are on our way out um, it was nominated obviously for best play um, also feel free to chime in if you have any thoughts I'm just gonna kind of go through them best direction of a pit play by Patrick Marber um, which again, heck yeah, well deserved. Um, Very good, best- so well done. It is so hard to cover so many different time periods, and then we're using actors who are playing multiple roles over different time periods and at different ages. And so, yeah, I think it all moved so smoothly. Everything worked really well together. And that really goes back to the director. So like super well-deserved in my opinion. Agreed. It also, you know, when you have 30 people on stage, it's sometimes hard to deal with all that. Yeah. But it was great. It was understandable, which I was a little worried about, if I'm being yeah. honest with you. Best featured actor in a play, Brandon Uranowitz. Yeah, yeah. Um, woo, woo, woo. Big Brandon Uranowitz so fan here. Love the cheering. <laughs> um, best scenic design of a play by Richard Hudson, obviously. Best costume design of a play, Bridget Reifenstuhl. I hope I said that Costumes correctly. were really good. Mm-hmm. because they really represented that represented the different times that were yeah. that we were showing and so and that's another thing that's kind of difficult to do that I think was done really well so yeah yeah and last but certainly not least best lighting design of a play by Neil Austin 
And um, as I said, this comes out on June 5th. So this upcoming Sunday are the Tonys and you can watch and see if uh, Leopold Stat wins anything as I imagine it will. As do um, I. I also. feel like it's going to win a lot of things. I also feel that way. I did just want to like make one more small note about Tom Stopper before we get off. I was looking at his uh, screenwriting credits. I don't know if either of you have taken a moment to look at them, but I understand why you say a lot of his plays were comedic before because he's credited as a co-writer for Shakespeare in Love and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He wrote on <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. He wrote on Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. He was not credited on either of the last two. Um, and he also wrote a radio production called Dark Side, which was based off of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And so he is like so spread out through his content and his career. It is incredible. And um, I know y'all had mentioned in the beginning that he has come out and said this would be his last play. And I think this is a good one to kind of tie it all up and send him out. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I think we covered a whole bunch of good stuff. I appreciate y'all letting me ramble with you. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. We had the best time. I'm so glad. Lovely. So yeah, if you also would like to get involved, likely, and or talk about anything, bring up new plays, or see how we can work together, feel free to email us info at unseenartists.org with an S on artists. You can find us on any of the social media, unseen artist without an S org. Yeah. On that note, I'm Courtney. I'm Noelle. And I'm Lee. And we are unseen artists. Bye-bye.